This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. For our third interview for the Life Sciences Consulting mini-series, we're talking with Rima Bhaskar, currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Genome Institute of Singapore. Rima studies systems epigenetics and immunology, and I think is intending to combine this with business. And yes, University of Singapore does mean Rima is chatting with us literally from across the world. Rima, I looked it up. You're like 9,000 miles away, and you're also 14 hours into the future. So hello from the past. <laughs> Good morning, and welcome to the show. And thank you very much for having me, Vanessa. I'm really happy to be here. And yes, I, I am in the future. <laughs> it's a beautiful yes. world out here. <laughs> beautiful. I'm glad to hear that because I'm not so sure about the past. I'm just kidding. So <laughs> I know you spent some time at Stanford, and it sounds like you are on quite an adventure. And I'm dying to know the details. So let's start maybe closer to the beginning. Can you take us back to when you started getting interested in some kind of science or business and how that led you down your current path? Of course, of course. It's been quite an interesting journey. So I actually started out by doing my undergrad in biochemistry in Imperial College London. So I got to spend some time in Europe and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. So I actually started out really interested in philosophy and literature. Science was one of my other passions. But um, however things ended up, I actually ended up choosing to do science as my career. And then during my undergrad, I started getting more interested in other things, like what can I do with science and um, what other things are orthogonal to it, right? So I had a sort of experimental background, if you will. So going into my PhD, what I did think was that I wanted to have a really broad base and Stanford uh, was great at offering sort of options to explore while doing your PhD. And I really wanted to get into the computational aspect of things because you can generate all the data you want, but uh, you, you have to analyze it at some point. And I hadn't quite done that before. So I put in the effort to, to pick that up then. And business is this sort of thing I've always been interested in but never quite confident enough to do like you know most scientists and I'm sure you'd agree we tend to be a bit more wary when it comes to non-science things that we might be capable in we're like I don't know if I could do that you know I'm just I'm just a scientist like that's that's quite the trope and so I wanted to put an effort to break that in myself and in my mind so I got the, some opportunities to work with some biotech companies as a consultant. I, I got to take the Stanford Ignite program, which is like an entrepreneurial program at the business school. And that's kind of how everything started and matriculated. And I guess I'm here today. So yeah, short, short synopsis. Awesome. So when you look back to some of your early passions, you mentioned philosophy and literature. Have you found unexpected connections between those early passions and what you do today? That's, that's a really great question. So one of the things I kept running into in science was that I was, I was trying to put my artistic side and philosophy side into it. And, you know, like I think of science as a creative expression, which is completely fair. But unfortunately, there's a difference between 
science as a passion and science as an enterprise, right? And when you do science as an enterprise, like in terms of being in academia, you actually have to separate it a little bit. So I had to take the time towards the end of my PhD when I realized that I was doing this and trying to kind of put one thing into the other. I had to be like, okay, let's let's actually keep it apart. So I actually started back on, you know, doing more philosophy and writing, fiction writing, poetry writing on the side and focusing on academia and not trying to put all that pressure on science like that. And I think that's been going a little bit better than trying to do it at once together. I don't know if that sort of answers your question, but it's kind of this 10, 15, 15, oh gosh, how old am I now? Yeah, a long journey that's been happening. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I sometimes think back to graduate school and, you know, I guess a little bit before that. And then I mm-hmm. really stopped to think of how many years it's been. And before <laughs> I might've been like, oh, this many years. And then I just kind of pause and say, no, that, yeah, a long time ago. Let's oh continue God. the conversation. <laughs> That's so you totally talked fair. about um, this idea of science as an enterprise. And we've mm-hmm. sort of very lightly touched on just the mention of business I think this is a really an interesting topic because you have scientists out there that engage with science in purely an academic way. You know, you go into the lab in the morning and you maybe you're you're doing wet lab experiments or maybe you're sort of a data scientist and you, you're at your computer and you focus on writing the papers and maybe maybe the most sort of outward facing role that you have to the public is giving a talk at a conference. And then you go home, you, you know, wash, rinse, repeat, do it again. Mm. And then this idea of science as an enterprise, well, you're still sort of practicing the science, but then all of a sudden you have to kind of present your work or your company as a service, or there has to be branding. And you can't just give talks, you have to advertise, you have to tell almost a story that's larger than what you're actually doing. Have you faced this yet, still early, sort of in your in your postdoctoral stage, or have you thought about it? Actually, I'm I'm of a slightly different opinion than you. I don't think they're quite that disparate, I think it's sort of a sliding scale, right? Because science and academia at the end of the day is sort of an enterprise as well, because you, A, you're marketing your science, whether, like you said, whether you're going to conferences, giving talks, trying to convince your PI to give you the funds to let you do a side project, etc. And speaking of, a, you know, professors, like they're basically managing a small startup team with, you know, a few hundred, hundred thousands of dollars or a few million dollars, depending on how big or wealthy the lab is. And I think that's just, you know, going through a PhD and a, and a postdoc, the sooner you sort of understand that, you know, essentially academia is sort of an enterprise trying to publish in big journals is, you know, yes, of course, it's, you know, great science is a big part of it, but it's also you know, your network, it's also where you are, what you're doing, what's the, you know, what's fashionable at the moment, right? I think the sooner scientists realize that, the easier a time they have in academia, because at least from my own personal experience, I went into it, uh, you know, at Stanford, pretty naive about this. I was very much like a very idealistic sort of scientist, like what what you would think of as a typical academic scientist, like, I'm going to do beautiful science, I'm going to love it, I'm going to put my you know, head down and just focus and do that. You know, I don't care about marketing and branding and and speaking well, you know, that I, I'm not, I haven't spent time honing in on that, but I'm going to get really great at the bench, you know, create wonderful data. I think that shift, the sooner it happens is, is helpful. And that kind of happened for me kind of midway during my PhD when I started realizing that 
these skill sets, you know, whether I was going to stay in academia or whether I was going to leave and go to industry, like you said, when it's a full on enterprise, when, you know, whether you're running your own team in industry or you're working in a big biotech company, it, that's that's what you do all day. You know, you're working for a bottom line, so to speak. And that's a lot more fuzzy in academia where it's papers, et cetera, et cetera. I think the the sort of ideology and sort of like approach to it might be similar, just in different scales of it. Right now I have students under me and I'm trying to get grants. So I'm, but I have a professor, so I'm not completely independent, but I'm sort of, sort of trying to find my way in that. And if I was going to leave academia and start my own small little consulting firm, or I had to go work for a biotech company, it would be very similar skills just used to different capacities, if you will. At least that's, that's what, that's what I think still naively, because I haven't done the, <laughs> the full on non-academic doing my own thing it's kind of just part-time till now yeah gotcha so you're saying that academic science is inherently like a business and really the variance is the degree to which the people are practicing it actually recognize that and you're reflecting on your own experience where at some point you realize that the qualities that are necessary to be successful as a business person overlapped tremendously with being a scientist So if you look back to that time in graduate school, do you remember specific experiences where you had that little light bulb go off in your head? Like, wait a minute, like I thought this was this way, but really I should be doing it this way. Oh, so many times, so many times. (laughs) I think just in sort of seeing the feedback to how I was doing science and how I was communicating it, very importantly, how I was yeah, I think I think a lot of it came down to marketing and communication, right? And how I was performing differently compared to my peers and in a very in, you know, in competitive big schools like it is, you know, like there, there there's a lot of emphasis on what is trendy and what is cool that's being done and how are you how are you presenting it? How how fast are you? How quickly are you turning it around? How much product value, you know, how, how much like what's your value proposition of your research essentially and what is the final product output i.e how many papers are you getting out i think that it was that reinforcement of these sort of like end goals that reflection on my performance that that kind of gave me this feedback that it was actually like that and not something that was purely for you know learning for learning sake and and doing for for doing sake sort of thing yeah Yeah, I can see what you were mentioning before when you called it kind of a continuum. So from my experiences at Stanford, I remember many times going to, for example, a talk by a famous PI at our institution, and it kind of seemed like sometimes they were overselling ideas. They were overhyping it. They were making it to be a bigger thing than it actually was. And it made me very kind of skeptical and suspicious of a a lot of these things. And it made me ask the question sort of for myself, how do I check myself on my own work and the stories that I'm telling just to make sure that I'm not overselling it or making it larger than mm-hmm. than what it really is? No, I agree. And I think a lot of what you said, uh, that sentiment really comes from the top, right? It's, it's how journal editors or how conference curators kind of organizers want to hear science and want to, you know, want you to then communicate it that way, right? Because the, the way you get grants is not by 
realistically selling your work. No, you're you're almost going to cure cancer. Like it's whatever you're doing is going to cure something. Like it's it's going to have to be that serious, or you're not going to get millions of dollars in funding. And that's fair. There is a lot of research that you know lives up to that sort of standard that it's being sold at. But you're also right. There is you know a lot of cool science that's being done that might not be at that level of like we're doing something groundbreaking but it's still very very important and unfortunately either they need to get communicated that way or sometimes they don't get to see the light of day at least you know in terms of how science enterprises carried out but but then again i'm sure there are also a lot of labs and universities and places that that do kind of brilliant science that doesn't hype it up as much i'm not sure i, I uh, I certainly interacted with a lot of people from those sort of labs where where they kind of tell me, oh, you know, in my in my PhD, my professor was very down to earth. You know, we would publish realistically, we didn't shoot for the big journals, and I loved it. I got to do science, and and you can kind of see them kind of remembering that time of like I got to do science my way instead of like trying to conform to this academic standard, if you will, of trying to publish in the big big fashionable journal. So that. That was that's always beautiful to hear from one's peers. Yeah. I think the media plays a big part in it, too, because you see sort of like a paper come out. You know, there, there's some famous examples, like the woman that published the study that shows like if you go in the bathroom before you give a big talk and you like put your arms up, it, it gives confidence <laughs> yeah. and then it got a bunch of attention and then it was like disproved later or something. But it makes a huge difference how a media entity presents your work or doesn't present your work just in the past you know couple of months with covid research i've seen a bunch of really interesting papers come out from national labs and various groups with really promising like antivirals and they maybe get like a tweet or something that nobody likes and they they don't get the attention that they deserve based mm. on what a big deal, at least personally, I think something like an antiviral that works really great would be for COVID. <laughs> Agreed. That's basically, it's like, well, we cured HIV. Surely we can use a similar approach. To, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, another really interesting parallel with this conversation is that I feel like I saw the exact same dynamic, but with software or open source software. I think mm -hmm. my epiphany in graduate school was that if I wasn't very loud about sharing these projects that I thought were really important for the larger community, well, no mm -hmm. one would know about it. But then at the same time, I remember like falling asleep and with one of my many grad student worries being like, oh my gosh, like all these little projects out there that are actually quite good, they don't know that they need to be loud and share and they're not getting the attention. And, and it also makes me, this is this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'll, I'll just briefly mention it. When you look at some of the big players in open source software, uh, so pointing out machine learning, like one of the early contenders, of course, was TensorFlow. I sometimes wonder how much of the signal for a community, like how strong a project is, is truth. So like, something that reflects that the tool is good and badly needed and people love it, as opposed to like, well, it also has an entire monster tech company behind it with marketing <laughs> and a million developers and, you know, sending them to talks everywhere. So how much of that signal is real versus artificial? And it made me very uneasy and it still makes me uneasy that for many things, I guess, open source projects or science, it's really hard to tell. I completely, completely agree with you. Inherently, nothing's created equal, and it's the same in in the software world, and it's the same in academia. It's the same in any type of 
you know, enterprise, really academic or not. But I think the beautiful thing there is that, you know, we as the, the small guy, if you will, you know, aka someone who's not part of a large team at Google creating TensorFlow, for, for example, without the millions of dollars in, in advertising, we as the small guy, we have an opportunity to be innovative in a way that might not be immediately accessible to them, right? In order to, to, to exemplify what I'm saying, at least with, with a scientific example, I could never have, at least in the next 10 years or so, I, I probably could never have the level of funding and access to do these sort of large scale, oh, I sequenced half a million cells and I, you know, did this, I, I spent, I threw millions of dollars at this problem. And I, of course, came up with a, with a cool paper and an open source software, et cetera. Like that's, that's not the game I can, I can necessarily play not without that level of backing. Right. But it leaves, you know, and I've been thinking about this a fair bit in the last half a year or so, but it leaves this sort of like space and the ether to be like, okay, you know, what sort of cool biology are people not thinking about that might be actually very important and that might actually change a few people's lives? Like, yeah, maybe it's not the most fashionable thing, but what can I create in my own space? And I think we as the little guy have the opportunity and perhaps the responsibility even to explore, you know, that and try and create you know, some sort of our own level of marketing in that, you know, and our own name in that. And I think that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. So hopefully it's, it's not too bleak for us non-Googlers out there. No, I I love that perspective that it's, it isn't actually a downside to not always be in the spotlight. It gives us that kind of peace and quiet that sometimes is needed for, for deep thinking and coming up with some of these Mm -hmm. new ideas. No, 100%. I mean, history doesn't isn't very kind to underdogs un, until it's in retrospect. But most of history's biggest names didn't start out as history's biggest names. They were always underdogs and they always had to do things sort of in the background in in their own way by, you know, figuring out their own stuff that, you know, like and and I think we as at least, you know, and I think of it as an inter- intersectional thing as well, right? We as with women and, and minorities and all of that, like all of these things coming together in, in the STEM field. I think we have, we're lucky, at least I think of myself as lucky to have the diversity of experiences that I've had being who I am and bringing that to STEM and being able to create something different and possibly not always <laughs> appreciated to the extent of, of everything else in this bigger sort of enterprises. But I get to do and try to do things my own way. And I think that's that's very nice. Yeah, That's a fabulous perspective. So to kind of go back in time a little bit, you were in, and actually I want to kind of connect these couple of interviews. You were in biosciences PhD program at Stanford at mm-hmm. the same time as Tyler, who was our first yes. interview in this mini series. When did you leave Stanford? What year did you leave? A couple of years ago. I graduated in 2016, but I stayed there until 2017. And I was always the weirdo walking on the treadmill in the gym with my computer. And I don't know if you ever saw me, but <laughs> I don't think we've I don't think we've met in person, but we did overlap. I started in 2014, end of 2014. Yeah. So we okay, did gotcha. Yeah. 
So when you think back to leaving Stanford and now moving to a totally different country, how has that transition been in terms of work, in terms of routine, in terms of social, all of the aspects? I think a really good thing about the training programs at Stanford and at least what I made of it, which is kind of branching out and understanding, you know, Silicon Valley sort of biotech world, how the VCs moved and and really trying to get some sort of insight into all of those things. I think the helpful thing is that it gives you a very strong base, you know, whether it's a technical one, marketing, communication, sort of understanding two different sides, the academic one and the, the industry one, and kind of seeing the similarities, essentially. I think it gives you, it, it really gave me that sort of broad perspective to bring forward and apply to different different situations. And, you know, science is done, obviously, very differently in different places. Funding structures are different. The, the people makeup and sort of lab cultures are, are different as well. But at the end of the day, a lot of things actually are quite transferable. So I've been quite lucky to have the level of training that I've had at, at Stanford and, and done the things I've done. And it, it kind of comes back in unexpected ways, right? You're like, oh, you know, that thing I did that time and I figured out some stuff. Now now it's coming in handy. Oh, that, that's really nice. You know, so that, I, yeah, that that's always nice to have. So you mentioned that you had some early experiences in consulting. Could you share some highlights from those experiences, perhaps how you found the opportunities and what you learned? So I would say that the big learning opportunities for me were really, you know, seeing how seeing how they moved, seeing how the team had to kind of be agile and kind of develop products very early on. And this is like very like this is pre-seed or they've just had some seed funding. So it's not a lot of room to be working with, but they had to make real science and cool products work with all the buzzwords like, oh, single cell this and AI that, et cetera, et cetera. And it was interesting to see sort of how the differences were between, you know, academia in its like mature form versus very early startups that were trying to build their product. And they love having people like us around because we have a foot in the academic world and we have a very strong sense of scientific acumen. So it's a lot of hands-on problem solving, which I really love. And it's a lot of different problems coming at you as well, both technical as well as on the, on the business side of things, right? The, the interesting part for me and the highlight for me and the learning, the biggest learning thing for me is the intersectionality of all of these things and problem solving at at that speed, right? Because when you're doing a PhD, you're more so very much working on your own. You have your own project. You're problem solving, but it's on pretty technical things. And then when you're trying to publish a paper, sure, you're trying to figure out like the mechanisms of doing that, but there is a lot more, a lot more support there. Unlike if you were, you know, running your own little startup or if you were consulting for them and watching them run their own startup. So I think having that perspective of like, wow, you need to be juggling a lot of things, you know, gave me sort of how possibly like my professors feel, not exactly, but like that sort of realm of juggling that many very different things at once and needing to have that perspective to go from technical to business to in between to, okay, now I need to go, you know, network and I need to sell the company in a way that is that the people there are going to reciprocate positively on. 
and all of that at once, I think it brings together all these diverse aspects and talents that you might have or you might have needed to hone over the years or you need to hone right then, <laughs> right there, and brings it together at the same time. And I think that that was really the selling point for me and what I enjoyed and still enjoy the most. Yeah. I think when I was a graduate student, I didn't fully appreciate, to be a little bit cliche, how many hats my advisor truly wore in mm. terms of not just running the lab and kind of running it like a business and taking care of all of us, like mm -hmm. his, his lab children, but also making sure to be engaging with communities, giving talks. He mm -hmm. was He was also like writing books and just this public figure that mm -hmm. represented the domain that that he was pretty famous for. And yeah, mm -hmm. I guess it's fairly easy as a grad student just to be very focused on your research and you go in for your once That's or fair. twice a week yeah. meeting and mm -hmm. you're totally blind to how much more work there is outside of just sort of practically doing the science. Exactly, exactly. And to be fair, at some level, it's good to have that sort of laser focus and naivety, even if you will, because you're like that's when you're really honing in your expertise. That's what you're going to be selling essentially once you finish your PhD. So it's not it's not terrible that we spent the amount of time we spent in lab and did what we did. But I certainly think you know us kind of branching out and doing other things gives that sort of perspective that makes everything clearer, puts it more in, in focus, if you will. Yeah. Agree. I also found with the first couple of years when you're doing research and classes, I suppose it varies by program, but for my program, the first couple of years, you are just so busy and, you know, that business tends to make you stressful. I think it would be hard mm. to even have vision outside of the very narrow tunnel in front of you to just like make it through the week alive and get all the things done without turning into a tiny pile of dust. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fair. Classes and and sort of like the competition of being being in a place that wants you that wants to do the best and wants you to do, and you're like, yes, I need to do that. And, you know, it 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 can be a lot. But I think you know now now in hindsight, and I think I don't know if you'll agree with me, I'm a lot more confident about my capability to handle all of these things and have those skill sets to juggle all that and and the, the deadlines and, and all of that. I'm like, you know, but if I've gone through that and I could handle it at that level of pressure and all of that, everything else is cakewalk. You know, I'll figure it out. I, I figured out that I can figure it out. You know? <laughs> Beautifully said. There's definitely something to say about having a wide range of life experiences. So if your level of kind of stress is if you imagine a dimension between like I'm so stressed. I want to crawl into a hole and like just hide for a while versus like, oh, I woke up today and I have absolutely nothing to do. If your negative side of the dimension is much more negative than someone else's, then you can have a relatively stressful event. And, you know, relatively speaking, it doesn't feel as stressful. And that applies not just to kind of stress and work, but many different things in life. The degree to which we've had a range of life experiences makes it so that when we're older in the future, whatever, we're much more tolerant of bad experiences, you know, resilient, I suppose. Completely. And I don't know if you've heard about, I think it's called Grit, or I don't know if that's the name of the book, but I, I think I was reading it a few months ago. But essentially, that's what it talks about, that the biggest determinant of success is is really not talent or IQ or, or any of that. It's, it's what you just said. It's, it's resilience. It's, it's grit. And that comes from having diverse experiences and not just positive ones. 
at the very least, it makes for an interesting personality at the very most. It's the reason for your success. Yeah, I, I think that's the reason I turned into who I am. Let's talk a little bit about the science. So I read that you're working on something related to cellular plasticity and in the context of cancer. Yeah, I, I am. And it's something I've been interested in throughout the years, uh, throughout the various research work I've done. Cellular plasticity being how cells change, why they change, what do they change into under what circumstances, what's around them, what's telling them to do, you know, what they're doing, you know, whether the instructions are coming from the outside or they're coming intrinsically from within, right? you know. So from outside being like different, different cytokines and different secreted molecules and proteins is talking to them or from within, like epigenetics. And those are the sort of questions I was really excited to ask throughout my scientific career. And now I'm doing it in the context of colon cancer. Yeah. Okay, so let's walk through a story of Sally the cell who lives in the colon. And can you tell us <laughs> Sally's story about what kinds of changes he, she, or it, Sally doesn't really have a gender, Sally's a cell, <laughs> given that someone is developing colon cancer? Sure. Yeah, that there, you know, there's a certain amount of disease progression happening in their gut, unfortunately for them, of course. So Sally the cell. (laughs) So Sally's been chilling. You know, Sally has been regenerating a fair bit because it's your gut lining and it's one of the most active epithelial layers in your body. It has a lot of work to do. It keeps you alive, basically. Otherwise, you know, what's the point of eating if you're not taking in what you're eating? So it's important roles. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of times, like in, in many things in, in life, it, stuff goes wrong. And when, the, when, when stuff goes wrong, when it's dividing and sort of regenerating, Sally the cell becomes not just a normal cell. It becomes a little bit different. And it could be because... There was some issue when it was dividing it and it, you have a, you drink a lot of alcohol and it's affecting poor Sally. <laughs> you eat a lot of red meat. You're very, very stressed all the time. Or perhaps, unfortunately, you know, you carry some genetic abnormalities from birth, for example. But due to all of those reasons, Sally is acting a little bit differently. And that grows and Sally talks to her friends around her. John, Brandon, and Chad, don't know how I came up with those names, but they talk and she's like, you know, I'm a little different, but I get to like grow and do more cool stuff. So here's some signals for you to be able to do that. So they join her and now it's a party, right? And that keeps going. And at some point they're like, okay, I need to make sure that my hardwiring is is different. So you're genetically mutating, I'm changing the DNA content itself, or I'm changing the structure and shape of my DNA, which is epigenetics. So I'm going to then make myself do the thing I wanted to do, right? Or the other way around, it's inside out, you know, something is different inside me, and therefore I will be different as well. And it's kind of, it's not so rigid as people might, might think of it. It's, it's a lot more fluid. It's a lot more moving pieces that's happening. It's, it's a network whether it's an extrinsic sort of signaling network or an intrinsic sort of epigenetic network, it's all talking to each other at the same time. So Sally and her friends are now 
very happy. They're in a bubble. They're growing. They're like, great. We're going to get bigger and bigger. We're going to take up space. We're gonna, we, we need more resources. We need more blood vessels here. We need to shuttle in uh, different components that we need to grow. And at that point, you know, the person starts experiencing these symptoms that are not very pleasant. And as it progresses, Sally's like, you know what? I need to find new territory. And it's getting too crowded here. There's too much resource constraint. I'm going to go elsewhere. And that's when the real problem starts, because then your your tumor is disseminated, and that's a much bigger problem than it staying in one place. It can be easily cut out. And the interesting thing about colon cancer is that you know we're all going to develop it at some point. It's just that something else might kill us for, first. <laughs> that, that's it. You know, <laughs> it's it's a really weird, morbid way of putting it, but it's true. It's true. It's it's one of those places in your body that's really prone to this sort of thing. And unfortunately, with the sort of high stress environment and poor diets and, and high fat diet and things like high sugar, you know, all of that, it's making it a lot, a lot worse. And the incidence across the world is, is getting much higher in the recent years. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so really, all the Sally cells and the Fernando cells in my body, it's really just like a race to see which which one of them can mutate to give me cancer and kill me first. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and if somehow my I could be like preserved, they would all do it at the same time. And it's just a question of who wins the race. I, sort of. That's, that's hey, really kind evolution. of morbid. But it's also kind yeah. of funny because now I've like personified my different cells and my organs and I imagine them like competing <laughs> and I, I feel like there's nothing I can do about it. So I might as well have a light heart about it. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we can't be mad at evolution necessarily. We got here because of it, but it's still happening, you know, at every second, at every, you know, in every organism, every cellular level as well, things are changing. And, you know, the world has never been what it's been in the last hundred years since industrialization. And that's doing a lot of things to our body because, Lo and behold, our biological evolution is not at the same rate as, you know, technology and societal social evolution, if you will. (laughs) For sure. So in layman's (laughs) terms, that's why you want to catch cancer early and why one of the sort of treatments is to literally cut out the cells that have changed and started their little party and to hope that you've cut out this entire network and that you didn't miss any pieces. Exactly. Exactly. Early detection is everything. And at least in places like Singapore, they've been rolling mandatory testing and stuff out for for these sorts of diseases after you turn 50. And if you have family history, they encourage you to do it it sooner. And I think that's, that's really the biggest arsenal that we have to better understand how to, you know, to better understand early detection and to stop it before it gets, it gets worse. So epigenetics, you mentioned that that's when you have cellular changes or some kind of changes that actually trigger changes in gene expression. How do you study that? Um, That's an interesting question. There are different ways you study the shape of of DNA. You can kind of look at it as like three-dimensional structure and be like, okay, what are the contact points you know what what's close to each other what is it what's its actual sort of structure right and then you're looking at you know essentially 
either it's NMR or sort of cryo EM, sort of like really complex protein structure approaches that look at the different proteins and look at the actual shape of the DNA. And then you have things like HI-C, 5C, which is essentially looking at what the contact points in the three-dimensional structure of the DNA is. Then if you zoom zoom down a little bit more, you can look at local accessibility and accessibility means you know how much can a protein actually bind and touch the dna and therefore affect you know gene expression like transcription factors like actual polymerases that allow transcription to happen then you have things like ataxic which is essentially assays to figure out what parts of the of your dna are accessible in order to in order for gene expression to then occur. so there are different levels at which you can sort of understand sort of the shape of dna or what's interacting with it where are the proteins of where are your proteins of interest sitting and what might they be doing as a result you know, what are their binding kinetics etc so there are physics approaches there's biochemistry approaches and then there's the biology of like what does that mean right can we perturb the sort of accessibility, the sort of shape of DNA, the interaction of the proteins to understand what then happens to the cell and how important that is. And I think epigenetics is a little bit of an underdog, right? Because it's not a bombastic thing that you can then bring to the clinic and be like, yes, you know, I'm going to assay the whole shape and accessibility of your DNA to tell you something about your disease. It's not that straightforward. It's a lot more subtle than that. It's not like, okay, because you have BRCA1 mutation, therefore XYZ, you have risk, you know, it's it's not so one as to one, which makes it that much more complex. And I think very, very, in a very biased way, very interesting as well. <laughs> so you're kind of playing in this sort of like shadow space almost where there's a lot of things happening, but it's it's hard to know what they exactly mean and how it all works together to create the end product. And going back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about, you know, finding the sort of space between all of these science superstars to, you know, do your own work and create meaning. This is sort of like my my approach to it in terms of understanding cellular plasticity and, and things like that. It's not very sexy. It's very difficult to understand and study, but I think it's it's the linchpin of what makes cells behave the way they do in a good way or in a bad way you know i also think there's huge potential i, I think it's sort of a, a shot as you mentioned it's like a shadowed area now because it is so complex probably it's not like an easy win and easy like let's start a company and make millions mm-hmm. and billions mm-hmm. of dollars but I, it feels <laughs> i'm looking at this from a very layperson point of view but it does seem like just something simple like let me come up with an example off the top of my head, like maybe you could look at gene expression and that would give you hints about what step in the process Sally and her friends are in terms of wonking up someone's colon. And then that gives you advice about what treatments you can pursue at that point, because, you know, step X has has not happened yet. Agreed. Agreed. And I think, you know, there's a lot of space for epigenetic drugs, for example, to be used in clinics in a much more smart way. So one of the, historically, one of the issues with epigenetic drugs and why they're very, you know, they're not used extensively in the clinic is that we're highly tolerant to it, right? Because you're like, okay, let me give you this drug that changes 
you know, some of the proteins that are binding and the, you know, how your DNA shape is and your body's like, cool, cool. I'm a, I'm, I'm going to circumvent that. I'm going to change some stuff and keep doing what I'm doing, but then your stuff's not going to work anymore. So it's this huge amount of resistance, you know, as opposed to you being like, oh, let me put a small molecule inhibitor to a key kinase and knock out your cancer cell, right? That, that was huge. And it still is frontline therapy for a lot of, for a lot of cancers, right? Uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors for one are, are a big class like that, for example. So I think that's, that's kind of why it's, it's hard to get that. Like you said, it, you can't just be like, oh, I found one thing that's going to do it all. And I'm going to make it into a company. It's a lot harder, unfortunately, epigenetics, but you're right. There might be potential lurking in there somewhere that is, is still unexplored. Yeah. So early in the interview, you mentioned that you wanted to get your training to kind of buff up on the your computational skills, which obviously mm -hmm. are, are becoming more and more important the more we progress in time. Yes. Can you talk a bit about what role software plays in this work and then specifically open source software? Of course, it everything, <laughs> everything. I mean, right up to the point of data generation is, you know, your ability to understand you know, the biochemistry of what you're doing and your wet lab skills and your sort of like how you plan experiments and how you understand and run the machine. But anything after that point where you've collected your data, and mind you, I mean, of course, most of us, it doesn't matter if you're a biologist, biochemist, or what have you, scientist, your main job is collecting that data and then understanding how to analyze it to answer that question. And that's that huge space where what you said in terms of computational skill and ability, as well as open source software comes in, especially in the academic community, right? I think it's very, very important to have access to other people's work in a way that will speed up work and it helps the whole community. And fortunately, and a lot of journals do, do want you to publish your code alongside your work. So because of that, we do have a rich climate of code sharing. And I will say that the only drawbacks there is that because academic code production is not, of course, at the same level and quality as, you know, industry code production, a lot of times there's, you know, it's, it's, it's not the smoothest, it's not the most efficient. So again, it behooves you as, as someone who's trying to answer the question, what can I answer with my data? What can I figure out with my data? And what biological questions can I answer? It, you need to have that sort of level of technical computational skill to go in and be like, okay, this is the approach I need to use. This is how I need to debug X, Y, Z. And like, it's, it's as simple as debugging code other people have written or writing your own code to do X. And as complex as what sort of mathematical statistical approaches do I need to apply to this sort of data to answer these sort of very important biological questions, right? I think that, that that's a huge need. And I, I'd be shortchanged as a scientist if I didn't have the ability and acumen to do that part of, part of it as well. Yeah. Are there specific languages or libraries that have become the bread and butter of your work? Yeah. So when I started out, I mostly worked in R. I do a lot more Python now. It's mainly the two, a little bit of MATLAB, but not really that much. So it's mainly R and Python. And as for libraries, I'm a huge fan of Tidyverse on R. 
And I think it was a game changer when it came out. I think it made everyone's life much more easier because they made working with data structures and analyzing it very quickly that much easier. I'm trying to think of important packages. I mean, the equivalent will be like pandas or something like that in Python. So I think that the biggest help for people like me who you know don't have a whole undergraduate degree in computer science, if you will, the most helpful packages for me are ones that make it easy to interact with your data and ask the questions you wanted to without thinking too much about, okay, I need to build this from scratch. Like I need to build the ability to read in a CSV and create these plots. Now, I don't, I don't quite want to do that. I'm not so invested in, in developing that side of things. What I am invested in is how can I get from point A to point B, right? And the car that's taking me there, I want it to be as efficient and as fast as possible. And I know enough about how a car works to build it up and make it go faster and give it, you know, modifications. But I don't necessarily want to build it from scratch. Like I, I'm not, I don't build packages unless I have to. I don't, un unless, you know, I, I there's no car to get me, <laughs> then I do it. So it's kind of a need-based thing, if you will. But yeah, I think a lot of people in my situation will agree that, and like you mentioned as well, there's there's no way of getting around this. There's just too much data in biology to not be able to, to for us to not understand how to analyze it at the very least and at the very most do a great job of analyzing it ourselves. Yeah. So for someone that maybe hasn't even gone to grad school yet or started their career, it would be very easy to look at, for example, where you are now and be like, oh my goodness, there's so much to learn. It is overwhelming. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who sees this work and is inspired and interested, but doesn't really know where to start? That's a great question. So I think the first step, and this might not be the answer I've, I would have given you five years ago even or, or, or so, but the first step really is, is self-awareness, is knowing how you do things and how you want to do things, right? So school isn't for everyone. Uh, rigid classes aren't for everyone. You mentioned having to do two years of classes as a mandatory, and I'm sure they were extremely helpful. And you know that's probably how your mind worked. But I took the introductory class to coding at Stanford, and I, I dropped out of it because I was like, you know what, I know as a fact that I'm not very good with classes and I'm not good with structured learning to contrary, you know, I know it's a contrarian belief because I've done a lot of school. So it seems like I, that that should be something I'm good at, but it, it never was. <laughs> I just did a good job of, of you know, passing. So it behooves someone who's starting out their career in this to understand how they want to do it, right? Do they want to go to a bunch of schools? Do they want to do a bunch of rigorous sort of methodical classes? Or do they want to just pick up a textbook and read it? Or do they just want to start trying to work on projects? And that's really how I learned and taught myself data analysis. I, I kind of just did it and fumbled a ton. So it's like very, very slow moving at first and it's painstaking for like, I'd say like a good year, year and a half. And then you hit your stride of like, okay, shit, I'm actually doing things really fast. And I'm picking up sort of the ways of doing things. And there's pros and cons to both sides, right? You know, people who've had structured learning, they get important ways of how to do things a lot faster versus someone like me, 
I didn't start using GitHub until way, way later in the game, right? Because I was like, oh, that's not important. It's actually, no, it's actually very important. <laughs> but someone who had a more proper training, if you will, would, would have gotten that from the, from the jump. It depends on what, how you move, how you think, how you want to build that up, you know, to your end goal. Unfortunately, science is a game if you want to move at higher levels. A PhD is almost mandatory, not so much maybe in the startup world, but certainly if you want to be in academia, you need to have a you need to have a PhD. So even sort of planning out what sort of schools one might be interested in and what sort of what are they expecting for their programs and doing it your own way. You don't have to follow a rule book or follow how someone else is doing it, but having the confidence to be like, I don't quite know what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to try and I think that'll get you further than anything else, anything else, period. Yeah. That's really good advice. <laughs> if you kind of flip the roles now, now you are the younger person that doesn't have an experience for someone who's experienced in consulting. So let's say you in five years, you in 10 years, it's mm -hmm. hard to kind of predict these things, but have you started to think about the path that you want to try for yourself? Yeah, I have. I have actually. I think having a level of flexibility and problem solving in my day to day is is very important to me. And this might be a hard thing to do. I don't know. But trying to create a space in between academia and industry or going into industry, but maintaining very close ties to academia is something I'm really interested in doing, because I think current models of how academia works is, is a little bit outdated, right? Because there's a lot happening in industry and there's a lot happening in academia and the crosstalk is not necessarily very high, but there's a lot that can be leveraged and learned from one another if there was a more seamless way for the two worlds to interact and work together towards common goals. And I think there's a lot of unmet need in that specific type of interaction that I would love to be able to facilitate. Um, and problem solve on both sides of, of the hand, whether it's pushing, you know, scientific knowledge, which is really the ultimate goal of, of academia, or turning that scientific knowledge into translationable, commercializable products, which is kind of the goal of industry. It's not so disparate. And I think what I see myself doing in the future is perhaps, you know, it's, it's not going to be, I'm not going to be like, yes, I want to be a fully uh, tenured professor and that's it. It's only academia. No, I'm not. I'm not that person. And I'm also not the person of like, no, I'm just going to go work. I want to work in a big pharma and a big biotech company. And I want to move up the ranks. I might do that for a while just to get the experience of how, you know, that world looks like. But that's not what I want to be in. Ultimately, I'd want to do something independent and work with different entities and make the communication a bit, bit more seamless and work on cool problems, you know? Yeah. Hopefully related to cellular plasticity as well. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get Sally, you know, can't just let her have a party down there. <laughs> so we are coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. Can you tell us something cool about living in Singapore? Something cool about living in Singapore. It's lots of things. I think the accessibility is a big thing here that I think is people don't realize when living in other places, just the ability to get from point A to point B the great public transport system. I never have to drive, which, you know, I, I like driving, but I, I'd rather not drive if I could. So that's wonderful. Accessibility to conveniences like food, 
you know, groceries and, and, and things like that. Like, you know, there's this concept of food courts and hawker styles here that, you know, it's very prevalent in Asia, but not so much in the Western world. So when you think of going out to eat, you have to go to a sit down restaurant. You have to, you know, anticipate spending a certain amount of money. But here it's very much of let's just go out and eat at these food stalls, you know, and it's it's ready food. I'm not saying it's necessarily the healthiest option to do, but it's a lot more accessible, both economically as well as getting to it than it is in the Western world. So I think, yeah, that would be to sum, sum it up in one word, it would be accessibility. Yeah. So when you aren't working, what do you like to do in your free time that may or may not exist? Hypothetical free time. <laughs> Hypothetical free time. Oh, that's that's hilarious. Man. Read and write. I like writing a, a lot. And in the last six months or so, I've been making the time actually to write more poetry and write more fiction and work on, you know, my own philosophical ideas. And if that, you know, matriculates into me putting it out there, I will definitely let you know. <laughs> yeah. I would love to read your poems and writing. I also like to write poetry and random ah. kind of articles sometimes. And yeah. I, I think more people should do it, but it has been such a pleasure having you on the show today, talking about Sally the Cell and, and some of these <laughs> really interesting dynamics in academia. And I really love your vision for making this converged space between academia and industry. Mm-hmm. You, you've hit the nail on the head and the same is true for other things that extend also kind of to what I work on, which is sort of more software development. I've always craved mm-hmm. to have these kinds of interactions that I used to have at, in academia that I don't see anymore now that I'm sort of a grown-up professional. So I am on board with your vision. I'll probably follow you on Twitter just to kind of stay up to date. And thank you so much wow. for getting up at like 6 a.m. and talking <laughs> to us this, this morning. No, and thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And I loved, I loved talking to you as well. And because you said you're going to follow me, so I, I actually dropped off of Twitter. Like, oh no, are you? On, did you I, I a will, different one or? Yeah, because I was trying to do the switch to Mastodon, and I never quite did it. All, all I did was do nothing. So. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I, I should get back on the game. I should. I should. As much okay. as I hate Twitter, we, we love it at the end of the day. So I'll, I'll need to figure that out. <laughs> okay, well, let me know when you have a, a place where you're sharing things so I can make sure to follow. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. Okay, thanks, Rima. Thank you.